Welcome to week two of our Greatest Showman series. You can see in that short scene, uh, the looks that people give those who are different. Uh, it does, probably doesn't take much of our own memory to remember the looks that maybe we gave others growing up or the looks that people gave us. Uh, when my son was just starting to speak, one of the first things that he learned was the word sit, sit. And he was so happy that he could say it that he would just go sit, sit. And he would just say it with such authority. And uh, we, were, we were walking into a store uh, in River Park area, and a guy started to, to leave the store in a wheelchair. And Dex immediately goes right up to him, points in his face, and says, sit, sit. And we're cringing. We're like, yeah, uh, he's saying squint. And uh, the sun was in his eyes. He loves that word. And we were so embarrassed. Uh, those looks, those moments where someone notices or points out something that might be a tad different. Uh, the Greatest Showman isn't just a film about circus performers. It's a reflection of contemporary society, divided by pain and injustice, being pulled apart at the seams by those in power. Racial discrimination in this movie, check. Gender inequality, check. Class warfare, check. Prejudice based on physical ability and differences, it's there. The choice between family values or power. The undying pursuit of the American dream at all costs. It's all in this film. And The Greatest Showman is set in the 1800s, but once you get past the costumes, you can't help but feel it is eerily similar to what we've witnessed in 2019. It is an allegory of what the church should be and what we stand to lose if we give up Christ's command to love others in favor of our own political and personal gain. You see the prejudice in several different groups of people throughout the film. The first is in the thugs. Okay, these guys, they're holding signs, they're calling everyone freaks. Here's a picture of one of the scenes where they're just kind of uh, upset and getting mad. Uh, get the freaks out of here, this is our town. Then you also see this prejudice in the high society people. You see, they hide it better, but they often struggle with discrimination and prejudice even more so uh, than those uh, who don't have the financial means. Then you also see it you also see this prejudice in Barnum and Carlyle, the two most prominent actors. At times throughout the movie, they too succumb to the cultural norms of prejudice, racism, and judgment, all the while simultaneously fighting against it. Barnum becomes the very thing he's fighting against. We too have experienced this, as the great theologian Taylor Swift once said, haters gonna hate, hate, hate. And it's easy for us to say haters going to hate because we don't see ourselves as the haters. The question shouldn't be how are other people or how is society prejudiced or judgmental? The question should be how are we prejudiced and judgmental? In what ways can I become more Christ-like? We got to look within. And early on in his faith journey, the apostle Peter saw the world as us versus them. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. We're the insiders, they're the outsiders. Uh, and uh, he treated non-Jewish people differently than he treated um, everyone else. Uh, 
But Jesus was moving in Peter's life. And in Acts 10, God gives Peter this supernatural vision of the equality of the Jews and the Gentile. Gentile is just a fancy word of saying non-Jewish people. Uh, God gave him this vision that, that Jews and Gentiles are equal. And he encounters this Gentile person named Cornelius. And Peter grows. He matures. His worldview expands. He begins to see the belovedness in all people. But later in his life, the old Peter, the Peter that was raised to see the world as us versus them, creeps up again. It didn't fully die in the past. And so Paul writes this. Galatians chapter 2, it'll be on the screens. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, when they're not with the non-Jewish people. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, the Jewish people. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, there's a lot to unpack here, but Paul is saying that when he ran into Peter at Antioch, he stood opposed to him. These are the two most prominent, most well-known early Christian leaders of the entire church, Peter and Paul. And because when certain conservatives, uh, some conservative religious people came from James, Peter changed his behavior. See, he used to hang out with the Gentiles. He used to hang out with non-Jewish people. He'd eat with them, and he would eat like them. And then these conservative religious people show up, and he begins to draw back, distance himself from these Gentiles. I wonder if you were one of these Gentiles who had this close relationship with the Apostle Peter, and then he begins to draw back from that. How would that make you feel? Would you feel like you're an important person in the church that you value, that you, have met, that you matter? He used to hang out with you, but he doesn't do so anymore. Paul says, I call them a hypocrite. What's he say to Peter? Does he say, you're being racist, you're being prejudiced? Does he say, you're being an elitist, you're being a snob? No, he doesn't say those things. Those things may be true, but that's not what he says. What's he say? He says, you're not acting in line with the gospel. The word here is the Greek word orthopedeo. You'll probably recognize some of these words in English. Ortho means straight or upright. That's where we get the word orthopedics. And then the word poes, which is feet. So orthopedeo means right or correct feet. He's saying your feet are all wrong. He's saying they're not lined up. He doesn't say you're being an elitist, you're being a snob. No, he says you're not walking in line. You're not walking straight with the gospel. Your footing's wrong. To me personally, one of the funniest things that, that I see that makes me laugh, giggle, is when people trip. <laughs> Not like mean where they hurt themselves and stuff, but like they're walking along, doing their thing, and then pff, and they fall. Like it's so funny. My son Dex and I will watch like people falling videos on YouTube together, and we're both laughing hysterically. Uh, this past week, I was uh, running at Woodward Park, and, uh, and I'm getting ready to cross one of the, the streets where the cars can go, and a car kind of is going as well. So he sees me kind of doing this, and then he goes, and I'm like, nice guy right here, right? So I kind of wave like this, take a step, and boom, fall right in front of him. 
Like I am making eye contact with the bumper, and then when I lift my head up, he's staring, laughing at me like this. <laughs> and so I try and look cool. How I, there's no way, there's no saving this. And so I'm like, yeah, man, I'm good, I'm good. And I just kind of keep going. And I'm cringing as I'm running, you know, like the rest of the way, like I am a fool. <laughs> there's this invisible force working against us all the time, pushing us to the ground. It's called gravity. And if you get out of line just a little bit, it doesn't take much at all, we fall. And it's funny. It's just like that with the gospel, except it's not so funny. The gospel is a line built on grace. And when we see someone who is different, when we see someone we disagree with, and we fear, and we judge, and we withhold the compassion that we as Christians are called to demonstrate, we, like Peter, are not acting in line with the gospel. We trip in. And it doesn't take much. One judgmental thought, and we've already tripped up. Who are the people groups or the persons that cause you to trip by not showing them grace and love? There is a behavior and attitude aspect of the gospel. It's a way to live. You see, in the ancient world, the people were divided in three ways. Uh, they were divided by race. See, there was the Jewish people, which most of the scriptures were written by and directed to. But there are two kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. That's it. There's no middle ground. There's no middle. Even if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, they had a separate name for that, called a proselyte. And they were still separated. They didn't have full inclusion into the Jewish religious community. There were certain things that they couldn't do still. Two races of people in the ancient Near East, Jews, Gentiles, and then they stayed separated. The second way people were divided was by gender. Women and men were also divided, and they were treated very differently. A woman couldn't testify in court. A woman had no say-so in the ancient world. If, if, if you're innocent of a crime, but then you're accused, and the only person who knows that you didn't do the crime was a woman, you were going to jail. third way they were divided was by status. Slavery was abundant in the ancient world. It's just the way things were. You could be conquered into slavery, you could be sold into slavery, or you could be born into slavery. But if you're a slave, you were less than equal in the ancient world. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and upsets the apple cart. Look at Galatians 3. This is just earth-shattering good news. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. The three ways in which people divided society, Paul combats in this passage. Racism. Nope, there's no slave, there's, there, there's, there's no Gentile, there's no Jew. Classes, slavery. No, there's no slave, there's no free. Gender, men and women, there's no, neither male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. This is radically good news in the ancient world. The scriptures declare that the people of God, we say no to the walls that divide us. We say in Jesus' name, let those walls fall down. By his love, let the walls fall down. This is a deep conviction rooted in Jesus. You can see the walls 
beginning to crumble in the movie The Greatest Showman. Some of you have told me that, that you know, you'd never seen it. And then after last week's teaching, you're like, oh, I should probably go see it. And, you, and then you've texted me, you've called me, and you're like, I don't know why I missed it. In The Greatest Showman, the walls begin, these divided walls begin to fall. But then you also see the walls being built up again, a kind of a two steps forward and a one step back. Uh, in the 1950s, there's a, a, a church in Dallas called Lover's Lane United Methodist Church. It began probably 40, 50 people. It was kind of in the uppity part of Dallas. And Tom Shipp became the pastor, and he was known in the Dallas area already because he had started a ministry for alcoholics. He said, somebody needs to care about the alcoholics in our community. So he started 12-step groups. He started uh, programs and tried to connect with a bunch of alcoholics all throughout the, the Dallas area. And before he started his assignment at the church, uh, Lover's Lane, one of the 40 church members wrote a letter to the bishop saying, I'm not going to be a part of a church with alcoholics. I don't want to go to the alcoholic church. It's a good thing that bishop did nothing with that letter because the church today ministers to over 1,200 alcoholics weekly in Texas. And the church itself, Lover's Lane UM Church, is one of the largest churches in Methodism. But that sentiment of that woman, right? This is upstanding people here, okay? Not people like them. We're going back to the divide of the ancient world. Then in 1961, the neighborhood began to change. No longer was the uppity part of... Uh, the Dallas area, many different uh, races began to move in. Many African-American families moved into the area around the church. And this is Tex Dallas, Texas, 1961. And Bernice Jones began attending the church. She was an African-American woman and the only African-American in the entire sanctuary. One Sunday, Bernice Jones, after the service, approached the pastor and said, I would really like to join the church and make this church my family. Is that okay? Can I make this church my family? The pastor ship said, of course you can. We would love to welcome you. This will be your church home and I will be your pastor. He didn't announce this in advance, but the, at the end of the next Sunday service, he gave the invitation for anyone who wanted to join and make their, this their church family and to confess Jesus as Lord to come forward. And in that congregation, Bernice Jones was the only person who stood up and walked down the aisle that day. Every set of eyes was watching her. Every person was leaning forward to hear what Pastor Ship would say. Surely he's not going to let her join, is he? And Pastor Ship welcomed her to membership just as he would anyone else. And at the end, there were a number of people in the church that applauded. They were grateful that Bernice Jones had the courage to walk forward and make that her church home. That week, Pastor Schiff received 20 letters from 20 different families that declared, we will not be at a church where races are mixed. This is not that long ago. Can you imagine? Bernice actually ended her membership several months later, saying that she was becoming too much of a distraction for the congregation. And she said, I'm sorry. And so she left. What kind of a church are we? My hope is that we are the kind of church where the kingdom of God is a party for everyone. And that every human being is created in the image of God and we welcome people when they walk in the door and we love them. And it doesn't matter their skin color or if they're rich or they're poor, if they're gay or straight, we're going to be a place that loves everyone. 
and that we demonstrate the love of Christ in that way. Just that song Noe sang, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's about the amazing grace of Jesus, and we extend that to everyone we see. In 1850, P.T. Barnum sponsored Jenny Lynn. Jenny Lynn was known as the, the Swedish Nightingale. Here's a picture of the actress who portrays her in the movie, and then also the original Swedish Nightingale, Jenny Lynn. She was an opera singer all throughout Europe. She was famous. She sold out every show she ever had in Europe. True story, um, Hans Christian Andersen, the guy who uh, wrote the story that would eventually become Frozen, right? The Ice Princess. Hans Christian Andersen was the famous author of the time. He asked out Jenny Lynn and she rejected him stone cold. <laughs> Let it go, Hans. Let it go. <laughs> she was popular. P.T. Barnum had this brilliant idea. What if we bring her to America? And this is a big deal. They said she had the voice of an angel. This is a big deal because the man who was running the freak show is now bringing the greatest singer in the world home. And his stock went way up in the eyes of the high and mighties. In the eyes of the hotsy-totsies and the hoity-toities, his, his stock went way up. She's a smashing success. And they're all gathered together for this party after the show. And there's a toast to P.T. Barnum. And, and all these rich people begin to raise up their glasses of expensive champagne. He, he finally made it. He's no longer just with, just with the freaks and the geeks, but now with the rich and famous. And at this point, Barnum circus performers want to go through the doors to mingle with all of everybody else. You see, they were allowed to watch the show, but they had to stand on the back wall. They couldn't have a seat with, amongst everyone else. So as they watch on the back wall, the after party's happening, their cheers and they're toasting to P.T. Barnum. They knock on the door and they're like, okay, let's go, let's go mingle. And then he, he shuts the door in their face, essentially saying, you're not welcome here. Watch what happens when they're rejected once again. And in that rejection, they find their voice. Watch this. It's amazing. We can clap. I do it in my own house watching this part. My, my son and my daughter want to watch this all the time. And they'll stand up and start moving and dancing. Have you ever been the one that is looked at or stared at or whispered about? Or maybe you're the one who has had the judgmental or fearful thoughts. My wife Sarah was hanging with a family friend just a couple of weeks ago. And when a person who didn't fit their worldview, walked by. After she passed, our friend said, ew. And Sarah was so off-put by that two-letter word, ew. Do we see others as image-bearers of God, or do we see others as ew? The truth is, we have all been that friend. What are we afraid of? First John declares, perfect love casts out all fear. Why can't we simply treat others as we would want to be treated, as Jesus teaches us? During that song in the film, 
as you, you saw it, there is, there is defiance in their movements. I've heard the song a hundred times, and I've seen it nearly that many. Two things come to my mind. One, we're all freaks. We're all broken. We all have things not quite right about us. We all have insecurities and doubts about ourselves. We've all at times been made to feel like our lives don't matter or we're not enough. Jesus came to say, you were created in the image of God. And if you let him, you belong to him. And he will love you relentlessly. He will love you fiercely. And you'll find your meaning, purpose, and hope in him. You matter to God. Again and again, Jesus shows us this. Luke 19 says this, The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Those who are marginalized or second class or made to feel that they didn't matter, that song is a gospel song. It's about what we find when we discover that our lives matter in Jesus. God says, you are my children. You are precious. You're glorious. The second thing, the best part of the song for me is the O's. Whoa, whoa. Why? Because there is a unity in it, and it becomes the anthem of the entire movie, but they're together in it. There is a shared brokenness that we've been cast out, we've been rejected, we've been lonely, but not anymore. We're together in not having it together. That's what the church should be. We're together in not having it together. And so, Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we project our perfect selves, right? We pretend we got it all together. We got the perfect Instagram home and snapshot. Everybody's smiling. But no, no, no. We may be able to fool other people, but we're certainly not feeling God. We're together in not having it together. We're all different. The people in the circus, Barnum Circus, they discovered something that the New Testament teaches again and again. How you look at people will determine how you love people. When we look at people the wrong way, it's really hard for us to love them the right way. Many years ago, I was working at a church as a youth pastor. And when they hired me, I think that they thought, here's someone who's young, he seems like he's a good fit, we can mold him into who we want him to be. And I understand that. And everything, throughout my journey at that church, everything seemed to be going as planned. Our youth ministry was thriving, we had a couple hundred students um, every single week, lives were being changed. But as the years moved on, I kept feeling that the, the church was pulling me in a direction that I wasn't called to go. And I got the sense that, yeah, John's great. He's, you know, the students love him. But when is he going to really buy in and do ministry the way it should be done? The very things that were giving the, me the most life, the most energy, the things that resonated with me most within my soul were the very things that I sensed they wanted to change about me. In my years at that church, they were incredible. So many amazing things God did during my time there. But in the end, in my heart of hearts, that who they wanted me to be was different than who God had called me to be. What is, 
taps. <laughs> taps. It's still happening. Now, now real quick, that, that song uh, means the, the closing of a day. The closing of a day, taps. Uh, and it's played at military funerals. The end of the day. And you know what's played in the mornings? Reveille. Reveille is that dun 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 right? It's this chipper, taps is this slow, this almost somber, and then wakes you right out of your sleep. Winston Churchill, at his funeral, said that I don't want you to play taps. I want you to play Reveille because it's a new morning and there's light only ahead. And so just even as that song came up on someone's phone, uh, awesome ringtone, by the way. Uh, what part of the judgmental self that, that you have needs to die? And in its place, joy, reveille, love, grace. When I felt that that church wanted me, who they wanted me to be was different than who God called me to be. Who are you called to be? I couldn't in good conscience compromise that. I am brave. I am bruised. I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. It's God's circus. I don't know who God has called you to be. I may not know the specifics, but I do know this. God has called you to be the least judgmental version of you. That's a fact. God's calling on your life is that you become the least judgmental version of you. God has called you to love everyone, every person who breathes. And God has called you to be a son and his daughter. Would you be willing to run to him? Because he runs after us. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for this circus that we call the church. We thank you for the ways in which you have shown us amazing grace. Thank you, God, that we belong. They were just a ragtag bunch of misfits, liars, dreamers, sinners, saints. And you call us into greater relationship with you, into greater relationship with the others. And so God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. You would give us eyes to see the image of God in the person we would normally judge. We would normally whisper about as they walk past us. Not so that they could hear, but certainly when they get a further enough distance away, we might say some things. God, help us, help our hearts to be broken for them and to love everyone. God, rid us of our judgmentalism, rid us of our religiosity, and replace it with grace. Replace it with love. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And you've called us your sons and daughters. That's who I am. May I find my identity only in that, that I'm a child of the King. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we declare the goodness of our Father?
Who I am. 